You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thank you, Sean. And before I begin, I just want to say it's... There's a lot of joy in me with just what happened so far in worship just because I love this church and I can tell that God is with this church. So you've given me a lot of joy with your prayers. So we come to Acts 20 and before I really start, I wanted to remind us why we are going over a passage like this. And it's a passage like these that really make me love that we do expository preaching here at Redemption Hill. Because this text has unique challenges, especially with the travel narratives. And it would be very easy to just sort of skip over a section like this to try to get to a passage that has more teachings or to preach on a different book like Romans or Ephesians. However, all of the Bible is God's word. So that means that even a text like this where we see travel narratives and a guy falling out a window, there is still something that is here for us. There was a purpose to this text. And no matter what I say today, I want to just remind you and encourage you that to not just skip over sections like these in your own reading, but really take time to slow down and study Additionally, I think it is necessary to recap what happened in the last sermon, because it's been two months since we've been in the book of Acts. And in preparation for preaching today, I had to go back and re-watch what was preached by Sean on Acts 19, 21 through 41. So what we see in that text was Paul was preaching in the city of Ephesus, and there was some fruits, there was converts from his preaching. However, the gospel was causing a disturbance in the area. Why? Because the gospel proclaims that there is only one way through Jesus Christ. And at the heart of Ephesus is the temple of Artemis, one of the wonders of the world. And at this temple around this temple, there were businesses, and their business was making idols for Artemis and selling them for a profit. Now, Paul, preaching the gospel, teaching that there is only one God and that God made by the hands of men are no gods at all, this was undercutting their business. So they caused an uproar, and they caused such an uproar that a riot nearly started until a local government stepped in to stop it. And what we saw from that text, as Sean pointed out, was just a collision of worldviews. And that brings us then to our text, because we see in verse 1 that it's after the uproar ceased. There's also some background that can be useful to us as we start to go and walk through this narrative. This, if you have a Bible with maps in the back, they can be quite useful And one map in particular shows us Paul's journeys. Well, in Acts 20, we are nearing the end of uh, Paul's third missionary journey. 
This is the beginning of his journey back to Jerusalem. He goes up into Asia and into Greece and then starts his way back. And this gives us a little color and a little picture to what is going on as he goes. Because this is most likely the last time that Paul will ever see these churches. It is his final encouragements that he has given. So then we are at our text, starting at verse 1. Uh, this text is interesting uh, because the major point seems to be in verses 7 through 12. However, this is bookend by two travel nar narratives. And there seems to be two main reasons that this travel narratives exist. Uh, the first reason we see travel narratives in verses 1 through 6, I think, is tied to Luke's purpose in writing. But this purpose isn't actually found in the book of Acts. It's found in his gospel of Luke. Now, this might seem like a leap, since they are two entirely different books. But in Acts 1, verse 1, Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So this first book is referring to Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, we see in verse 3 that Luke writes, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So these two books are intertwined with one another. Acts is simply just the sequel to Luke's gospel. And where the gospel of Luke covers what Jesus began to do, Acts is covering what Jesus continues to do through his church. So the purpose of Luke and his gospel is at the same time the purpose of Acts. And it is namely, as Luke says in chapter 1 verse 4 of his gospel, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the details of travel narratives are not arbitrary. They're not placed there by Luke by accident. They are actually proof that Luke is doing exactly what he intended to do, to give an orderly account of the gospel in Jesus' work. In fact, Acts is written in such a way that you can have detailed maps of where Paul is traveling this gives us certainty of the accuracy of what we are reading. The second point of a narrative text, of this particular narrative text, is it seems to be giving a broad overview of Paul's going abouts, while verses 7 and 12 zoom in and depict a very particular day of Paul. So, what do we see Paul doing in these broad accounts? Well, one, after the uproar and the near riot of Ephesus ceases, Paul takes time to gather the disciples in Ephesus and encourage them before departing to Macedonia. In verse 2, we see that during his travel to Macedonia, Paul again continues to encourage the church as he went. In verse 3, we see that he spent three months in Greece until his life was put in danger, which seems to be becoming more, more common for him. 
But what was he doing in Greece? Well, the text doesn't necessarily specify. However, I think it is easy to assume that he was doing what he has been doing, encouraging the church over and over again. And in verse 4, we see a list of people that were most likely a group of missionaries and disciples with Paul who again were being encouraged and taught by him, traveling with him, and it was a community together. So Paul, throughout his travels, knowing that he'll be returning to Jerusalem soon and not likely seeing these churches again, gathers them constantly, encourages them. And this is the big picture that Luke is painting for us. He's painting a picture of the importance of congregating and coming together. So then we see a shift in verse 5 and 6 when Paul actually comes to Troas. And it is now in verse 7 that Luke takes time to really flesh out an example of what Paul has been doing. So we come to the main body of the text in verse 7. We read, On the first day of the week, when we were gathering together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart to the, uh, on the next day, and he pro- prolonged his speech until midnight. It is necessary to take a pause here and sort of tease out what exactly is being described here. So the first day of the week is a very important day. It's Sunday. More specifically, it is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. We read in Luke 24, 1 through through 3, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So we're starting to see that shift. Remember, for the Jews and for For them, it was the Sabbath day that they were to gather. This is the first showing that it is now shifting actually to Sunday because of the importance of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. What are they doing on the first day of the week? Well, they're gathering together, or to put it another way, they're congregating just as we are. What were they doing while they were congregating? They were breaking bread together. What's breaking bread? It is part of communion. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? Then let's look at Paul. What is he doing? He's talking with them and giving a speech until midnight. He's preaching. So what do we have here? We have a clear depiction of the church. And I do not think that this was a one-time event. This is what Paul has been doing as he's been traveling. He has been gathering the churches in Greece and Asia. And I'm convinced that he was breaking bread with them as well and preaching the word. So then as a church reading about a church, what do we see? What, what can we learn? We see that the people gathered for communion and for a sermon, but not for a half an hour, not for an hour, but for hours and hours until midnight. The fact, in fact, after the accident that we see in verse 9 through 10, 
and we will get to that, Paul actually spends more time breaking bread, talking with the congregation until daybreak. And this is the main thing I think that we should be focusing on. There is a clear love of the word of God and a clear love of the congregation with each other. We do not spend that much time with something that we do not love. It seems to me that in churches in America, we have a very different kind of church service. It is a church service that is on the clock. First, for some, there's not even an eagerness to come. There are excuses that are given. Some that I've given is when we had church in the morning, I'm tired, I want to sleep in. Or when we have churches in the evening, maybe we have plans that we would have rather done. I cannot speak for you, but I have found it hard to wake up. I've found it hard to come on some days, not every day. And sometimes when I'm sitting in the pew myself, my mind isn't on the sermon. It's on what am I going to have for dinner? Or what do I want to do after this? Do I want to play some games? Uh, do I have homework to get done? That's a huge one. But my mind is not focused here. That's a problem. And if Sean goes long, or any other preacher seems to go long, sometimes I can feel annoyed. I thought this was supposed to be an hour. It can seem that my mentality is that God only gets four to five on my Sunday and not the whole Sunday. Afterwards, I've got plans to do. But that's not what we see here. No, the, the entire day, or at the very least, the entire night is given to God for the breaking of bread, community, and preaching. This is also not exclusive to churches 2,000 years ago. There are churches across the world where Sunday church is for Sunday. It's not for an hour. It is, time, it is the time for the church community to come together, to be with each other, and to hear from the word. It is said that if you want to see people value or to see what people value, you should look at their bank account, see what money they are spending, or where their money is being spent. But I think another good indicator is where's their time being spent? And I want us to look at how we spend our time. It is time when I'm here, that other things are consuming my mind, that is time ill-spent. Church is not something that we should dread. It is not something that we should slog through. I think there's a reason that Redemption Hill makes it a point to call this a Sunday celebration. We are here to celebrate the Lord. And when you walk through these doors, we are here to celebrate God through worship and preaching. And I'm not advocating that we should stay here and listen to me preach until midnight. But what I am saying is that we should value the time that we do have here together, just like the congregation at Troas. If a sermon goes long, it should not be an annoyance or inconvenience because you're getting more of God's word. You're getting more of God, worship, worshiping God now, at the center of this text, there 
is something interesting that happens that is not exactly typical on our Sunday service. In verse 9, a young man named Eutychus fell asleep sitting at a window while Paul preached and being overcome with sleep, he fell from a third story and he died. Paul goes down, embraces him, and pronounces his life is in him and this is seen as a miraculous resurrection from the dead. The question is, uh, why is this here? And I'll be honest, I struggled with this question. Because one thing to note is that about the incidents, um, Paul is preaching, kid falls, he dies, Paul heals him, and the very next verse, he goes back to breaking with bread and conversing with the congregation until daybreak, like nothing happened. But I do believe that there is a reason for this incident. One commentator, Matthew Henry, who I deeply respect, states that the death of this young man was designed by God as a warning to take heed of sleeping when the word was being preached. He saw this act as something that showed the jealousy of God for the act of preaching and how we should strive against the temptation of falling asleep in a sermon. I do not think that this is the proper way to read the text. Though preaching is, is important, it is valuable, it does not seem to me that it is some dire sin that when committed, the young man uh, was punished by God as if no act of God is, and, and to point that out, no act of God is actually mentioned in the text. He simply falls. Sleep did not will, he did not willingly put himself to sleep. He did not seek out a place to sleep. Instead, sleep overtook him. I agree with John Calvin, who is a brilliant theologian that many of us have heard of, that the, if the boy really did wish to fall asleep, he would have gotten out of a dangerous position, maybe found a nice place on the floor or a separate room, and go to sleep. He wouldn't put him in a place to die. Instead, it seems that we're getting much more of a picture that he's sitting there, Paul is preaching for hours and he's trying to stay awake, but eventually sleep does overtake him. I do not think that the lesson to learn from this portion of the text is don't fall asleep lest ye die. Instead, I think the point is found best in verse 12. They took the youth away alive and were greatly comforted. I think John Calvin again gets it correct when he states, and this is my paraphrase, that they were greatly comforted by the miraculous healing for a boy was saved from death, but also that their faith was made strong and confirmed by this resurrection. See, through this death and resurrection, or see, though this death and resurrection can seem out of place, ultimately it serves the church in the same way that Paul has served the church throughout this passage. The church is encouraged. Ultimately, it is the congregation that is served and built by the grace of God in this act of mercy. So in verse 7, we see the picture of the church. We see the congregation's love for the church and for the preaching that they stay until midnight. A freak accident happens. And instead of seeing this, the church's faith being 
faltered or his, their love wavering, they are instead strengthened by him through a miraculous healing, healing. I do believe that the church, the congregation becomes knitted together more tightly because God took tragedy and turned it for good. And I do not think that this is lost on our church. We have not had someone fall and die, and I pray against that. But that does not mean that God has not used circumstances to actually turn them and bless us and make us stronger. Speaking personally, I have never loved a church as much as I love this church. And on the days that I may not feel like coming, I am reminded I'm reminded of the joyous celebration that this church is. And I remind myself of all that God has done through us. So as we come to the end of this passage, we see the second travel narrative. And I, I will not spend much time here as I think it serves a lot of the same purposes as the first travel narrative narrative because we see that Paul continues to travel instead of taking a boat he walks most likely again to encourage others to preach and to strengthen churches and as we come to the end we need to think deeply about how we can have a desire for the word and for the church that would lead us like the saints of Troas to desire to come and be together and I do not have a full answer to this. It is something that each of you need to assess your own hearts for. But there is one thing that will always bring me to the word and bring me to congregate with you all. And it it's who God is and his message of the gospel. The people we see gathered do not come together because Christianity is some sort of self-help religion. They do not come together because this is how you live your best life now. No, they come together because of the truth of the gospel. They come together because they knew that it was God who washed away their sins. And it was God the Son who suffered and died on the cross on our behalf and rose on the third day. And it was God the Spirit who took us and changed our hearts and bestowed everlasting life. And it is on this basis that I love the church. It is on this basis that I love God's word. And it is on this basis that I, with a joyous heart, praise God in song. And it is on this basis that I challenge you all to do the same. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.